0: But now that this movie has come out there and, you know, taking out the franchise Marvel aspect of it, that original component that we discussed to come out and beat expectations in such a big way and to do it as an exclusive release for theaters, you know, not to be too on the nose about it, but this is a superhero movie that may have in large part saved that exclusive theatrical slate for most of the rest of the year. Because I think studios are going back to work this week after a holiday weekend feeling a lot more confident. Granted, keeping reality in check, and we're still in the middle of a pandemic, but things are viewed in a much more positive light now than I think even a week ago.
1: This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, and I am joined by, or really I am joining because these guys have been doing the podcast for weeks while I've been off like moving and doing all this other stuff. So I am joining your regular hosts, Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the chief analyst over at Box Office Pro. Uh, This week, we're going to talk about uh, the record-setting opening weekend enjoyed by Marvel's Shang Chi. Uh, We're going to look at uh, predictions for the Q4 box office and an interview with the filmmakers behind the movie Queen Pins, uh, and that would be Aaron Godet and Gita Palapoli. Uh, And that's a comedy from STX Entertainment, which hits theaters this coming weekend.
2: But first, a quick word from our sponsor, and actually this sponsor is coming through the concession stand. Oreo Cookies has figured out a way to take a concession stand classic to the next level. That's right, it's Oreo popcorn, and it's popping up at theaters across the country. This new blockbuster treat is made with real Oreo cookie pieces, drizzles of Oreo base cake, and drizzles of Oreo cream. What better way to welcome back moviegoers than with an amazing salty and sweet treat that combines America's favorite cookie and popcorn to create true movie theater magic. Want to taste a snack that's destined to be a hit for yourself? You can head over to oreopopcornsample.com for a complimentary sample of Oreo popcorn. Again, that's oreopopcornsample.com to get your complimentary Oreo popcorn sample today.
1: And we are back. And we're going to talk about Shang-Chi from Marvel, which opened in first place. It was a long-awaited movie. It's Marvel's first movie oriented around uh, an Asian American hero, and in fact, a predominantly Asian cast. And it's a character that was, you know, originated in the 70s in Marvel comics and has always been occasionally prominent, but frequently kind of a semi-esoteric Marvel character that gets a revival every once in a while, but now he's firmly part of the the MCU. So Rebecca, let's talk about uh, how Shang-Chi did as like a grand overview, and then we'll Talk to Sean about some details.
3: Yeah, I mean, in addition to those points that you mentioned, it's also the first MCU film to get theatrical exclusivity since 2019 at this point. I mean, obviously, Black Widow uh, went day and date. Shang Chi exclusively in theaters uh, for this weekend and indeed for forty five days. It made seventy five point five million over the three day weekend. Add in that holiday Monday, and we have ninety million on forty three hundred screens, approximately. Um, A Labor Day weekend record, but Sean, that's not really. you, You know, we. What does that record actually mean? Because it's impressive and it sounds impressive and it is, but typically Labor Day weekend is not the sort of weekend where you would see a film like this come out. So could you contextualize a bit what this record breaking from Shang-Chi really means in context?
0: Right. It it was an unusual Labor Day weekend. And, you know, that's the second year in a row we've had an unusual Labor Day. We kind of hoped to see this, this big revival with Tenet a year ago, and we all know how that panned out. Things are much better now, 12 months later, and it's it's still it's difficult to compare it to anything, though, because this is usually a weekend the industry takes off. I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, it's it's either when studios are, are dumping films that they don't think have a lot of potential or they just have minimal risk and they aren't going to have a wide commercial appeal. And at the same time, they're letting those last summer releases from July and August have their legs into early autumn. That is that Windows, that model is broken now. Who knows if it would become permanent? This could just be a, a pandemic one time and done thing. Maybe things go back to normal in the years ahead. But, uh, you know, this is probably a record that will at least stand for a couple of years, I would think. But if maybe studios start to see this as a, you know, as a lucrative weekend for the right kind of movie in ways that other movies have opened up the calendar before. I mean, we, we used to talk about... October and February and March being months that didn't see big blockbusters. And of course that's not true anymore. So
3: And then Deadpool happened. And,
0: and then Deadpool <laughs> suddenly everyone
3: they, wants to be in fact. I mean, but yeah. do you do you think this'll be a, a pandemic Labor Day weekend? Oh my gosh, that's a lucrative calendar date, or do you kind of expect it to go back to the more let's let people go on vacation?
0: <laughs> yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, I think a lot of people still did vacation this year, but they still they wanted to find time to go see a Marvel movie. I I, I would say you know, it's it's guesswork at this point because hopefully a year from now things will be a lot better pandemic-wise around the world. But uh, I would say maybe studios are more open to going on this weekend now. But I can't really like go out on a ledge and say we're going to have a big tent pole every Labor Day weekend. Uh, it's always going to depend on that late summer calendar, I think.
2: And of course, this opening weekend from Shang Chi at seventy five point five million for the three day frame is the second highest opening weekend on a three-day frame in the pandemic, trailing only Black Widow. Yes, a Marvel title. Yes, Black Widow was day and date with PVOD. But Russ, Sean, I guess you guys can agree, in terms of how these characters fit in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, these are two very different movies. One of them, a character that audiences have grown to know across numerous series of films over the years, and another one brand new. To be honest, guys, we're at this point with the superhero movies where I don't recognize most of these guys. (laughs) On the DC side, there's a shark that talks, fighting a starfish. On the Marvel side, there's the Shang-Chi and all of the other different super friends. I'm completely lost where these things are headed. But hey, the fact that there's a new superhero that can come in, one that doesn't have that recognizability, and claim not only an overall holiday weekend box office record here in the U.S. and a second place in a pandemic box office benchmark, that has to mean something, right, guys? I mean, it
1: It, yeah. it calls back to the origins, as it were, of the MCU in the first place. You know, Mar- Iron Man was, to most people, a non-entity. You know, in, in, in the context of Marvel Comics, he's a top-tier character, but in the context of popular culture outside of comics aficionados. At the time, Iron Man was not a saleable character by any conventional measure. And it was Robert Downey Jr. who helped turn that character into a blockbuster character and who helped anchor the cornerstone of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we all know how that went. Shang-Chi is interesting because this is not a cast that has that star power that Robert Downey Jr. had, which is not a knock against the cast by any means. And it has nothing to do with their, uh, their talent or appeal or capability. It's, we're just talking about it's, just a re- fact. it's recognizance, it's fact, right? you yeah. know, um, because virtually nobody has the star power that Robert Downey Jr. has at this point. So, um, to have this movie open in such a big way at a time like this, this is a good reminder that Marvel's formula works and that they've found a thing that audiences like and respond to, and they understand how to play to not just their audience specifically, but audiences as a whole. This is, this is a hybrid to me. This is a franchise movie,
0: but effectively it was still an original movie to anybody who's not initiated into that world of Marvel comic books. And for this movie to come out and, you know, we can talk about the pandemic records, but this is also the third best opening in the history of September period pandemic or otherwise it only it's only behind the two it movies which are just in the last few years and this is not batman 17 this is not you know iron man 35 this is shang chi and granted it is a marvel movie but it's still something that it kind of speaks to that i think that that desire of audiences and we kind of debate about this within you know the industry a lot is you know we have a lot of sequels we don't have enough original movies this was both to a lot of people in some ways
3: With Eternals, with Eternals coming up, the next MCU film in November, I mean, it really makes one wonder how Disney's going to approach theatrical exclusivity windows moving forward. Um, Up to this point, they've kind of treated every movie like it's a test. There hasn't really been an overarching, here's what we're going to be doing moving forward. But we do have an MCU movie that's comparable uh, to Shang-Chi coming out in November, comparable in the sense that it's, kind of new characters who people aren't as familiar with. And I I kind of wonder if there's going to be maybe a difference in how some of these Disney films are treated in terms of theatrical windows, if you're talking MCU versus other properties.
2: (laughs) And that's such a good question, and such a big question that I think we're all very closely watching. So for our listeners, this is the fourth consecutive weekend that a film exclusive to theaters hits number one and overperforms at number one. And in the weekends prior, the films that have been holding following that number one debut, and I include the 20th Century Studios release Free Guy and Universal's Candyman, have actually held decently well because of this theatrical exclusivity. Uh, now that we have two data points from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, with Black Widow going p day and date, opening at 80, and then dropping precipitously after that, we've got a comparable opening weekend here. Something that didn't have that IP recognizability, opening weekend 75.5. Sean, how important are the coming weeks and the performance of this theatrically exclusive title to sort of gauge where Disney sat in making future decisions on their exclusivity plans? Very important. Now,
0: with the asterisk here of let's let's everyone just ignore this next weekend, because post-Labor Day is notorious for big drops, even when there aren't new movies, and even when there aren't new tentpole movies, every movie in the market is going to get hit next weekend, just because that's what naturally happens. People are going back to school and work. There's really not a another major movie coming out to kind of spur that traffic, but at the same time, word of mouth is really good for Shang-Chi, so maybe it can kind of buck that trend. What I think we really have to look at will be that third and fourth weekend, essentially all of September. Everything leading up to October, which we'll talk about here in a minute, which has had a lot of changes lately. And that big slate of films coming out in October and November and onward. So it it will really be about those chase weekends, with the exception of the post-Labor Day hold. That's just automatically going to be kind of one we we expect to be big.
2: So let's follow up on that and look at that uh, schedule that we have coming out of September. Because as as you guys are saying, we've got quite a bit of runway here in September for Shang-Chi to really... Lean into that theatrical exclusivity while tempering our expectations and sort of looking at that reality, like Sean says, of what the usual drops are following. A holiday weekend like this one. We don't really have anything major on the schedule until September 24th, where I think it's going to be a big test of something like Dear Evan Hansen, a musical coming out on September 24th. We've seen titles like that not really work out in the past. The day and date release of Warner Brothers in the Heights being still very fresh in our minds. That's a big question mark, I think, in the box office. Then, We go into October with a big schedule change here. We had heard about Sony moving Venom, Let There Be Carnage, the sequel to their Spider-Man universe spinoff, Venom, moving from its September release date down to October 15th. Sony actually citing this last weekend's performance from Shang-Chi, moving it back. Now it's opening on October 1st. Guys, what are your initial reactions of that move?
3: Um, I I realize 100% that it is a good thing that they've split the difference, and I'm very pleased that we're not going to be looking at, you know, potentially six weeks before some of these major fall films start coming out. I'm glad we're, we're not seeing that kind of hole in the schedule, and I appreciate the confidence that Sony has shown in theatrical, because they really have shown confidence in theatrical exhibition. But... Uh, Every time you get an email saying, oh, we've had a release schedule change, it's just like, oh my God, my goodness, they could move people. That's what we've been seeing. I mean, and, and we'll go into this a bit. We've seen two fairly major release date changes from Paramount. And then following from that, you know, a week here and there, just wish things would settle down, but it is what it is.
2: And those Paramount release date changes being Top Gun going from November 19th, 2021
3: to May 27th, 2022.
2: That one hurt. (laughs) Yeah. And then Mission Impossible 7, another big Tom Cruise movie going from May 27th, 2022 to September 30th, 2022.
3: Right after those two films started, a fairly large marketing push to, I think it's fair to say, rapturous (laughs) reception at CinemaCon. To to see those release date changes after it looked like uh, things were finally starting to rev up with those titles was, I mean, we understand the situation with Delta, and obviously health has to come first, but it was disappointing.
2: Now, Russ, in the past, you've mentioned that when we look at Paramount's schedule, we have to divide it into two sections, the Tom Cruise part of the schedule and everything else. How much of a factor do you think... Tom Cruise's plans for a big marketing, a big global marketing campaign weighed in to this decision from Paramount.
1: Tom Cruise's, and also David Ellison, who runs Skydance Pictures, which finances these movies. Uh, you know, where Skydance is the sort of partner to Paramount that uh, Legendary Entertainment was to Warner Brothers for quite a while, which is to say massively important. Uh, these movies do not exist without Skydance. So, uh, yeah, I think that that is a huge part of it. We've also seen, uh, you know, notoriously months ago there was a video going around of Tom Cruise flipping out over Someone who is not uh, obeying COVID protocols on the set of Mission Impossible. And so he's clearly got uh, some eye on safety questions with respect to COVID, uh, which I'm honestly happy to see. Uh, And so, yeah, I think that he probably is a big, big part of these movies moving back. It saddens me. I'm a massive Mission Impossible fan. It's probably my favorite ongoing franchise at this point uh, as far as. Sequels and franchise movies that I'm excited to see. There's none probably that's higher on the list than the next Mission Impossible movie or the next two Mission Impossible movies because they all kind of they're being shot back to back and kind of tying together. But the release push makes sense, and as much as I wish it were otherwise, uh, Delta just remains too much of an X factor.
0: Yeah, and I think I'm mean, really just kind of piggybacking off exactly what you just said. This is this is a franchise that Paramount needs. Pretty much all of the world to be open. Actually, both of these franchises, Top Gun and Mission Impossible. So it it was you know I don't want to say it was surprising that they moved to Top Gun. I think we all were were hitting that point of optimism, hoping that by November things would be well enough and we would see a lot of we would see something like James Bond in October, which is sticking to its guns, no pun intended, uh, and going worldwide only in theaters. So that 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 kind of was the hope, the the pin on the billboard to me of of. Maybe suggesting Top Gun might stay, but it also, at some uh, in some ways, felt inevitable. And maybe on the bright side, you know, we've all talked about how crowded this end-of-year schedule is. Now this gives some breathing room to something like Ghostbusters Afterlife, and Eternals, for that matter, both still opening in November, all before The Matrix and Spider-Man in December. You, we're, we're about to hit a point where we've become so used to maybe one big film, two at the most, opening in a single month during the you know, the vaccine era, so to speak, that's going to change in October. We're going to have three to four every month from now on. So in some ways, I think it was, it was in a lot of ways, it was very smart for Top Gun to open that field up a little bit for, for everyone else and, It'll, it'll be in a much better position next year.
3: And speaking, uh, speaking, Sean, of Ghostbusters Afterlife from Sony, that's another film that had a release date change. Thankfully, a small one moving to November 19th of this year from November 11th. So just pushing back about a week. And then Paramount has moved Jackass Forever from October 22nd of this year back to uh, February 4th. So those are the release date changes that we've seen in the past week. Um, some some bigger than others in terms of the amount of time that's been shifting. But uh, yeah, we're not we're not through with the release date shuffle yet, unfortunately.
1: One other thing to uh, throw in about uh, the Paramount and Tom Cruise scenario is that Cruise is almost certainly going to spend two, maybe three months on the road promoting each of those movies. Uh, And then he probably also has a final post-production to do. He's a producer. He's very active in the the, uh, making of these movies. Uh, So, you know, that six-month window between Top Gun and Mission is almost certainly non-negotiable. There's probably no world in which there isn't at least six months between those movies to account for his promotion schedule, his work, and you know any number of other things. So if Top Gun moves, Mission is going to move too. That's just the way it is.
3: So uh, with this release date shuffle around 583 at this point, who knows, what are your expectations for Q4 in terms of box office? Uh, I know that you have been extremely bullish on Spider-Man No Way Home, and I, I can't imagine that the shuffle that we've seen has any effect on that. Though Shang-Chi's performance might. I mean, it has to shore that up for you.
4: Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, especially since I think we've talked about the the Q4 release slate, Spider-Man had its its trailer debut. And it's just, it's kind of been the talk of the internet as far as pop culture and movies go for a couple of weeks. So that that really has kind of solidified that movie as I think the end of year event. But, but now Shang-Chi has, it's done something that I, I think... Theaters and studios really needed to happen. We all knew Fast Nine and Black Widow and Quiet Place 2 to a very large extent would do really well. But now that this movie has come out there and, you know, taking out the franchise Marvel aspect of it, we that that original component that we discussed, to come out and beat expectations in such a big way and to do it as an exclusive release for theaters, you know, not to be too on the nose about it, but this is a superhero movie that may have in large part saved that exclusive theatrical slate for most of the rest of the year, because I think studios are going back to work this week after a holiday weekend, feeling a lot more confident, Uh, granted, keeping reality in check. And we're still in the middle of a pandemic, but the things are uh, viewed in a much more positive light now than I think even a week ago. So it's just about getting through September. I think something like malignant could do pretty well. We've seen horror releases really lift the box office and then when we get to James Bond and Venom and Dune and Halloween Kills, that's that's your momentum setter for the rest of the year. I, it's really tough to put too large of a prediction out there, just because we've seen what can happen in a short amount of time. We're already in the middle of our first billion dollar quarter since before the pandemic for Q3. I would expect us to keep building on that for Q4. Uh, maybe the potential to hit 1.5 billion, if not a little bit more. And you know whether that's considered bullish or conservative. I think we'll have a better idea in a month and a half or so Uh, that those end of year releases are really going to be a driver of just how much more improvement we can see until 2022.
3: And, and what's key on hitting those marks is not just these gigantic tentpole films, but the other, quote unquote, let's say, small releases coming out. You know, it, it's something that we've we've spoken a lot about before on the podcast, the need for a diversity in the different types of films that we're seeing. We need more, you know, quote unquote, adult fare. There needs to be comedy. There needs to be, you know, a variety of things that people can see so that, you know, John, uh, John Smith, who's not comfortable yet going to theaters when he is, there will be something ready for him. Now, Daniel, you spoke to the filmmakers behind one of those films that I think is, is one that holds a really interesting and important place in the schedule over the next few months. It's, uh, you know, would you call it a, a maybe mid-budget, mid-range comedy?
2: Yeah, Rebecca, I think we have this title, Queen Pins, coming out from STX Entertainment this Friday, an R-rated adult skewing comedy, very diverse in its representation and its cast, building off of the success of recent titles like Shang-Chi. Like Candyman. And when we talk about diversity, we not only mean that representation on the screen, we also talk about different genres and different types of titles available to audiences, like you're talking about. And I think this title fits the bill perfectly. It's not the big superhero movie, it's not going to be making 200, 300 million at the box office. But titles like this one, adult skewing R rated comedies, I think are important for that overall ecosystem. So I was very excited to speak to the filmmakers, Adam Goddard and Gita Polapalli, about this title, uh, starring Kirby Howell-Baptiste and Kristen Bell, about uh, two suburban women who get into a cut-out coupon scam. I had a great, great time watching this on a screen or with my wife, Uh, really regretting that I wasn't seeing it in the theater. So I I would like to encourage anyone looking for something a little bit different at the movies to give this title a shot. It's great to have these sort of movies in the market. Uh, So without any further ado, here is our interview with the filmmakers behind STX Entertainment's Queen Pins. Adam it and Gita Pulapally, guys, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Congratulations on your film! I just got to see it a little bit ago. Uh, I think it's a great title, the type of title that we haven't seen in the marketplace here in uh, in movie theaters as we continue in this reopening period. It's a diverse title, it's a comedy, it's going for a, a broad demographic, but let's call it an adult demographic. You know, it's, uh, there's some adult language in there, but it's, it's a great, fun movie. I, I can't think of a better time to watch it. Let's start from the beginning. When did you guys come upon this project? Because it's based on a true story, right?
5: It's inspired by a true story of these two women in Phoenix, Arizona, who end up counterfeiting coupons that make up a $40 million coupon scam. And in Hollywood, as you know, things get optioned very quickly. And so Erin and I, with our journalism and documentary background, are always taking a deep dive on the Internet, trying to find stories that haven't been told yet and need to be told or should be told. And I somehow was on a coupon blog, and I started reading three sentences that existed about this story that talked about a $40 million coupon scam. And it had the name of a detective in Phoenix, Arizona, that had investigated it. And we called him up briefly just to see if this was for real. And after we talked to him, we basically got in our car and drove to Phoenix and just wanted to know more about this story and what happened.
2: And of course, there's always the challenge of getting interest to make a movie, getting ready to make a movie. If I'm not mistaken, uh, well, maybe you guys can help me uh, putting the time frame together. When did you guys actually start production on this film?
4: Well— Interestingly, at first we were supposed to open production offices on March 16th of 2020 and our financing fell apart because there were going to be millions of dollars in COVID costs that we didn't have in our budget. So then it really became about getting our movie back off the ground and getting financing again um, and figuring out how to pay all of those COVID costs. So then we ended up actually starting production in October of 2020. And we shot this in Los Angeles during the height of the pandemic here, basically October, November, and and wrapped in early December of 2020. And as
2: filmmakers, you guys have tackled uh, a different type of projects in the past. You've tackled, uh, let's say, independent dramas. You've gone the documentary route. Obviously, you're going here for, let's say, a a very general audience comedy in tone, in style that presents its own tonal differences in how you approach your job. How did that speed bump from the pandemic impact you guys as filmmakers?
5: Well, I think one thing is it was really hard to shoot anywhere you wanted to in Los Angeles in the height of the pandemic. At the time we were shooting in October through December, you need to remember it was the election. It was Thanksgiving. Um, There were still protests happening in Los Angeles and we needed to make sure our cast and crew were safe, but also it meant we couldn't travel a lot of places. So 22 out of our 30 days were shot um, in Pomona on a mental health facility campus. That that had been shut down
4: and Mm -hmm. that was sort of our like bubbled set, but it was challenging. Like there were concessions to figure out how do we make all of these locations work Mm -hmm. on this Locate on this one facility. Yeah. Uh, but also, I think, in a positive way, we we stepped back and we said, look, there aren't a lot of comedies coming out. People are living in some really dark times. If we can do this, and we said this to our entire cast and crew, like, if we can pull this off, we can give people a reason to laugh, bring some joy in their lives. Like, it, it actually made it feel even more important to tell a story that had some humor in it because there was not a lot of humor in everyday life. So it's like people need to laugh and there's no, they don't have a a way to do that.
5: And once you set that goal of let's enjoy this journey, let's not put added pressures of anything else that we need to do, except enjoy this ride and let people experience the laughter that comes from our characters and the situations that they're in and just tell a good story then we knew what our goal was to accomplish. And we felt like every day we could set out to accomplish that.
2: And comedies really rely on on an ensemble. They rely on performances. And I think your casting here was perfect. I, I had a great time watching it. Of course, with that difference in scheduling in the pandemic, did any of those production complications impact the production end of things? And how were you able to direct your actors in a comedy at a time when it felt like
4: the world was falling apart? I mean, certainly we had to make concessions on just, you know, how much we could open the world up because there wasn't a world to open it up to. So certain things that we would have done if there were no pandemic, we just, we couldn't do, and we had to rethink them. We still felt like we could make a movie that didn't feel like it was made during the pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. But there were definitely concessions we had to make. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I think everybody was so, thankful to be on a set where we were all working and there was reason to laugh a little.
5: Yeah. And I mean, I think when you just bring such great talented comedy people to a set, you find a way to immediately have joy because they're always looking for interesting ways to take dialogue that you've written and and make it something special, but it's just a way to like, enjoy a difficult time period. In life and come together as a family and create something that brought a little joy to our cast and crew, but also hopefully to audiences all around the world.
4: But that, you know, Mm -hmm. six or seven months from when the pandemic began to when we were in production, it felt like everybody was coming to set, you know, having gone through some dark things and being so excited to just laugh a little and and work on something that didn't feel too heavy. Mm-hmm.
2: And you, you really can't, like you mentioned, you really can't notice that this was shot during such a difficult period in our society. This is the type of film that feels refreshingly removed from the pandemic. It's part of that entertaining escapism of when you go to the movies But it was a film that I I personally had a a great time with. I'm excited for people to watch it. I'm excited that it's hitting theaters. Of course, that's been its own uh, challenging story on our end as we've been tracking the recovery of movie theaters. For you guys as filmmakers, what's the importance of this title hitting movie theaters?
5: Well, I mean, and we we plan on going opening weekend and watching it with audiences because even when we were testing the comedy, we only could do one test screening and we had to watch it over Zoom. I think they were in Kansas. They were in
4: Kansas. We were in Los Angeles on Zoom. Mm -hmm. Whenever anything gets really loud on Zoom, the audio just cuts out. So whenever the movie would get loud, we actually couldn't hear, you know, if they were laughing and they had their masks on. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that helpful but you know, we've yet to see it with an audience and with comedies that's so important in yeah. post-production to be able to test it and see it with audiences. So we're excited ourselves to see it with an audience.
5: And I think just that community feeling where we're coming together and you're laughing and you're going on a ride together, it's infectious of just like Feeling that laughter all around in a room makes you just want to appreciate and go back into a movie theater. We're so excited to watch audiences watch this movie. So we're going to be popping into movie theaters wherever we can (laughs) just so that we can see audiences watch the film. Because we know there's just some great moments, as you know, in the film where we where it gets huge laughs. And we want to be a part of that.
4: And also, I think, you know, as the theatrical landscape changes we would always get told, you know, mm-hmm. big tent pole movies have a spot in the theater, horror movies, uh, animated children's movies and comedies because mm-hmm. people like to laugh together, that communal laughing. Mm-hmm. And it feels as though comedies are starting to slip out of that mm-hmm. group and we really don't want it to because... You know, there's nothing better than being in a theater full of people when something's really funny and it's infectious and everybody's laughing together. So for us, it's like it's important to at least have that option for people to go see it in theaters.
2: And this is such an important movie, I think, to hit the market at this time because of that reason. We know that the big budget poles work. We know that the horror movies and the family titles work, but we really need that diversity, not only in the types of films that go out there, but also in the people that are starring in these types of films that's definitely part of your cast. There's a great diversity within within that uh, ensemble cast that you guys uh, that you guys have. You have Hispanic uh, Hispanics in the cast. You have African Americans. You have uh, folks like uh, like Vince Vaughn and like Kristen Bell. So it's really a, a film that's adult skewing, but for a general audience. Uh, and I'm really excited. For this as you guys set to hit theaters. Uh, from your perspective, uh, as filmmakers. Um, we've been talking about the responsibility of studios to promote titles, but I think from the movie theater industry perspective, we're now coming to realize that movie theaters also have to put their part for these type of titles that don't come from a major franchise to market them, to reach all of these diverse audience that we have coming to theaters. As the filmmakers of this title, what would be some of those marketing tips that you would give movie theaters so they can bring in audiences for Queenpins?
5: Well, I'm sure these movie theaters have um, like sign up membership groups. And it's like, are we marketing to those groups? Are they doing fun things where they bring the filmmakers in and have special events where the filmmakers can zoom in and do a Q&A in markets that they might not be able to filmmakers might not be able to fly out to, but might still be able to participate in and give audiences a personal experience like they're feeling like they're part of Hollywood, too. I think the Hollywood experience is key,
4: and I do think it, where everything has become virtual because of the pandemic, and that's been sort of like something that's sort of on steroids of like, oh, you can do all of these things virtual. The idea that maybe they're not doing more like q and a's virtually after screenings, you know, figuring out how to put somebody on Zoom up on the big screen, so it makes it feel more special you're going and you're getting to meet the filmmakers or the actors after I think would be great. And always, you know, a trailer is always so key. Mm -hmm. And especially for a comedy, I think like a trailer that shows you like, okay, yeah, it's a funny movie. You also don't want to feel like you've seen all of the jokes in the movie. And -hmm. that was something, you know, I think our trailer is funny, but I know that there's a lot of humor that's not in the trailer that's in the movie. Some of the funniest stuff in the movie isn't even hinted at in the trailer. Mm -hmm. Um, So knowing that, you know, you're going to go and and have reason to laugh.
5: And share that trailer out, not just um, putting it before the movie, but also sending it digitally and making sure your their loyal base actually sees that trailer in many different creative ways.
2: Fantastic. And we like to we like to close up every conversation by asking our guests on their own favorite movie theater experiences. As we know, every filmmaker that we get to speak to, they all tell us the same thing. We make movies for the big screen. So for you guys, do you guys have a favorite uh, movie theater in your lives or one of those movie going experiences that really stand out for you?
5: I mean, the Arclight is one of our favorite movie theaters. They just take care of the filmmakers. They take care of the film. They respect audiences. And we really love the Arclight and hope the one back in Los Angeles opens up again so that we can <laughs> continue to go. <laughs> and the Vista is opening up as well. It was owned by, I think, John um, Tarantino just bought it. So we're actually really excited because that's in our neighborhood. We live in Los Feliz, so we're very excited to see what he does with it.
2: Great. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us once again. Queen Pins will be hitting theaters this Friday.
1: And that will wrap up this episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thanks again to Aaron Godet and Gita Palapoli for joining us. Uh, their movie, Queen Pins, comes out on Friday, September 10th. The Box Office Podcast is produced by recorded at Podcast and The Box Office Company. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.